it's a guy that flies a, a helicopter, and that's basically what he does. He flies a helicopter and shoots you know, other bad helicopters out of the sky, and his name is Stringfellow Hawk, which is a great name. Uh, but I thought his name was Sinjin. Sinjin is actually the name of a pro uh, beach volleyball player. <laughs> you just pulled that out of the recesses of your mind, didn't you? Uh, yes. Uh, I was gonna say, you know, what would make a better air hawk show or or airwolf show than what, what you described if it was a wolf that was flying a helicopter <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, with a sure. fighter helmet on, uh, goggles going. Airwolf. Okay, I got it. No, it's just a guy. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joseph Drowski. Hello, Joseph. Hello, Todd. We are once again, we should say, once again without our fearless producer, Andrew, who is away on assignment. He is, but he'll be back, and he'll be editing this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's still a part of this episode, even Hello, if you don't Andrew. hear his voice. Uh, today, we will be talking about Jane Eyre in the novel Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Are you sure it was Charlotte Bronte, Todd? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's Emily Bronte. Isn't no, it? it's Charlotte. I was making a joke about her pen name, Currer Bell, but uh, you were just... What? You totally just messed me up. What? It is Charlotte. Yeah, it is Charlotte. No, I agreed with you. It was Charlotte. I, I was making a joke uh, about her pen name that this was originally published under the name Currer Bell. Oh However, you're, it's C-U-R-R-E-R, <laughs> listeners. I don't know the best pronunciation. C-B. Uh, yes, this is by Charlotte yeah. Bronte. This week's episode is bar- brought to us uh, by Patron K. Thank you, K, for your continued support of the Protagonist Podcast. Thank you, K. And it is also brought to us by, I'll let you do this ad read, Todd, because you have a little personal plug you wanted to put in there. This is uh, brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Uh, they have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player. And I just want to say that in the past when I, we've done these uh, classic novels, I've just listened to like a free you know podcast version of this or – uh, you know, free audiobook version that I've got on the internet, and I thought, you know what, I'm gonna spring. I'm going, I'm going all in for Jane Eyre, and I'm just gonna see what this Audible version sounds like. My goodness, it is fantastic. So this, uh, the Audible version of Jane Eyre is narrated by Tandy Newton, and she is outstanding. It's <laughs> so good. Um, I was like laughing out loud, uh, walking around by myself listening to this, there were times when I was 100% convinced that there were uh, other people doing the narration and not her because uh, like her, her version of uh, Mason is uh, unbelievable. Her uh, man, she is really good. (laughs) I highly, highly recommend uh, listening to the audible version of Jane Eyre and uh, you can pick that up. And you can have a uh, a free one month uh, trial by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist and you can pick up Jane Eyre. Uh, yes, and we appreciate all the support that we get, and that is one of the ways in which you can support us. A uh, little bit of trivia about Jane Eyre. Well, I guess before we get to the trivia, Todd, how did you first come to Jane Eyre? Jane Eyre is one of my mother's most favorite novels, and I first, I think I read it in high school. Uh, I don't remember a lot about reading it in high school. I, I I don't think it was one of my favorite novels when I was in high school. <laughs> uh, 
but uh, I th- I know that I watched a film version of this when I was in high school and uh, read the book and then basically sort of forgot about it, except for my mom every once in a while saying, oh, Jane Eyre is so good. And I was like, nah, I don't know what all the, all the fuss is about. Um, and then uh, started becoming familiar with it again when we read The Air Affair last year and talked about it. Uh, watched the film version and then decided to teach it in my humanities class last year. And then I realized, oh, now I know what the fuss is about. <laughs> this is an amazing novel. <laughs> and now it's one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, similarly, for me, this is definitely one of my mom's favorites. And I don't know if it was... I, I think we talked about this some in an earlier episode, an act of teenage rebellion that I just would dismiss the Brontes. <laughs> <laughs> this is a see our discussion of Wuthering Heights. Yeah, episode almost, 31. Oh, like uh, almost exactly one calendar year ago. Yeah, episode number 31 of the Protectionist Podcast, we talked about Wuthering Heights. Um, and I will just say a lot of the trivia, I am omitting the trivia that I found for this because it was all covered in that Wuthering Heights episode. So if you want to find out a lot about the Bronte sisters, I would go listen to episode number 31 of the protagonist podcast. Um, but the only time I read this was when it was assigned, I want to say in ninth grade English in junior high. And I don't think I cared for it very much. And I was a moron because it's really good. <laughs> I know. What was wrong with us? Well, I think it's we kind of idiots. I think we've talked about this before. Sometimes you're assigned classics in junior high and high school and you're just the, like life experience, not ready for it. It's not like even an issue of maturity or, or content. It's just, you haven't lived enough life to really be ready for it. Like Great Gatsby was that for me. I read that in yeah. high school and I thought it was stupid and I read it again, uh, like two years ago and it was so good. <laughs> It was just more life experience was needed to understand everything that was amazing about that that novel. Yeah, this was uh, this is way high on my list of favorite novels now, and just has become so over the last eight months or so. Yeah, I really enjoyed. Uh, I, I didn't read it this time. I did a, a, an audiobook podcast just because of time. I had a lot of obligations that were not going to let me do something where I had to sit down and focus on that. But I love audiobook podcasts because. Uh, I, have heard them described as, um, passive, passive, meaning y- you can be doing it, uh, <laughs> but you can be active doing something else where something like watching a movie is active, active, like it takes your attention to, you know, yes. and everything you can't be doing something else. Uh, but it was such a, a good book, uh, as I listened to it. It's a delight. And I would also recommend to people who, um, who have a hard time and there are people that have, uh, that are just not accustomed to reading things that were written in the 19th century. And just the language itself can be kind of hard. And listening to a really good audiobook version of of a novel like this can really help it come to life, and you understand what's going on way better. So, uh, just if you're if you if you're thinking, wow, well, I don't know about this Jane Eyre thing. I read it in high school, and I don't really I don't know what all the fuss is about. I would say maybe pick up an audiobook version, maybe even on Audible, like a really high quality <laughs> audiobook version. And I will be shocked if you don't enjoy this this book. All right, some trivia about Jane Eyre. Uh, it's been adapted a lot. <laughs> Uh, in silent films alone, there were something like 10 different silent films. And then there's been a dozen or so sound films. And I'm, I don't know what it is. Uh, it seems like more than playing Jane Eyre, you get some really iconic actors that are playing Mr. Rochester, um, like William Hurt, yeah. uh, Michael Fassbender in a very recent, uh, version of it. That's a really good film. Actually, that Fassbender version. I have not is, seen it, is pretty but good. after reading this, I want to go watch that version. I think it's on Netflix. It was, and it's good. It has Judy Dench in it. Oh, I definitely want to see it. It's Fairfax. 
love Judy Dench. And the and the and the the girl that is Alice in Alice in Wonderland. Mm, I think Jane it's Eyre. Nia Wazakowska. Kowska. Wazakowska. I think <laughs> listeners love it when I pronounce words I don't know how to pronounce on this. <laughs> <laughs> you do it so you do it so well. But uh so so lots of adaptations and uh some other bits of trivia that I found as I was uh poking around uh looking into this. Um, oh, I, well, I've already mentioned it was originally published under a pen name, Kerbel. All of the Brontes, uh, the sisters that were publishing published under pen names that were masculine because uh, all of our culture was sexist for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and it was originally published with the title Jane Eyre, an autobiography, which I love that it was called really? Jane Eyre, an autobiography, and then it was said by Kerbel. <laughs> Underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but as an autobiography, it, it does, um, like Jane Eyre speaks in the first person and like addresses the reader, like says, dear reader, let me tell you about this thing that happened or reader. You might be confused about this event. Let me give you a little more detail. Uh, so, or I've just spent eight chapters talking about, you know, this, I've, I just talked, I just spent eight chapters talking about that many years of my life and now you know, like she, it's very self self referential. Yeah, in that I way. think there's a lot um, about this novel that was ahead of its time. Uh, I think that's one of the the areas. Um, it's it feels more postmodern than a lot of novels from that era. <laughs> in that, um, yeah. it's blending some genre. Like there's a lot of gothic uh, elements that come in, as well as the classic coming of age story that's layered into this gothic romance that's happening. So it's got a lot of really interesting. I I think. Um, progressive literary elements uh that It'd be fun to teach a class on like the postmodern the the postmodern 19th century novel yeah yes the, yeah the, the <laughs> and do the like pre uh, postmodern um, postmodern novels <laughs> Nor- northanger abbey and jane Eyre. Uh, that would be pretty you could fun. jump back further and do don quixote yes um uh, other, uh, i'm so glad that i just came up with northanger abbey and you came up with don quixote <laughs> we're just switching places uh, last bit of trivia, um, sad trivia in the novel, and this is a little spoiler warning, but Jane has a friend, uh, who dies of consumption or tuberculosis while at school. And Charlotte Bronte had two sisters, Elizabeth and Maria, who died of tuberculosis while at a school with poor living conditions. Um, and the, the school that kind of has, uh, ad, it's a negative presence in the story of Jane Eyre. It seems like it was modeled specifically on a school that many of the Brontes had gone to. Oh, Okay. We will have to talk about that some more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we haven't actually said what this story is about. Oh, yeah. We missed this. So, uh, I, I mean, I guess this is a story that I assume most people are at least familiar exists out there, <laughs> even <laughs> if they're not beat for beat familiar with the story. So, what's the quick version of Jane Eyre, Todd? The quick version of this is it's the autobiography of a woman named Jane Eyre, who is an orphan, and she has a pretty rough childhood and then eventually ends up as a governess uh, for a man named Rochester uh, and I mean, working as the governess taking care of a, a young girl who lives in Rochester's home. And uh, this is the story of her relationship with uh, a lot of people, but eventually her relationship with Rochester. And uh, it's a really great story. It's a really, really good story. 
And there are any number of places where you can get your hands on the story. We have mentioned the Audible version that you can get from uh, audibletrials.com slash protagonist. Uh, there are versions that are like the whole text. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's not copyrighted anymore. So the whole text is available in multiple yeah, online. places online. You could go and buy a copy from protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. Uh, I imagine there are some inexpensive copies of this. You could also pick it up at your local library. In your local library. Yeah. Uh, or you can watch any of the number of adaptations that have been done. Yep. So, uh, there's a chance to go do that if you have not. Uh, from here on out, we're going to go full spoiler mode. I'm about to give the full, uh, synopsis of it. So if you want to pause this and go get your hands on a copy of it and read it, uh, now's the moment to do so. Okay. So for those of you who are now still here, this is what happens in Jane Eyre. Jane is being raised by her aunt and it is an unhappy situation. Think Harry Potter with the Dursleys, but with more physical abuse from Dudley. <laughs> And then after an incident in which he is locked... And ghosts. Uh, yeah, ghosts. Uh, well, Harry Potter's plenty of ghosts, but just not at the Dursleys. So after an incident when she is locked in the room where her uncle died and she thinks that she sees a ghost, she has a bit of a panic attack and the family is really put out by her behavior. They just, they, they're very disappointed in her. <laughs> um, and a bit of the family's history that we find out. Jane's mother was from a wealthy family and then Jane's mother married a poor clergyman and the family disapproved of this, wrote Jane's mom out of the family's will. And then shortly after Jane's birth, both of her parents died and her uncle took her in. But then her uncle died and Jane's aunt doesn't much care for her. You know, views her as inferior stock and uh, just a drain on the family's resources. So Jane is actually sent away to a school for orphans, which has a very strict headmaster who deprives the girls of worldly comforts, such as edible food and warm clothing. Uh, and he does, <laughs> he does this to ensure that they're humble and hard workers. Brocklehurst, that's his name, right? Yes, it's such a great name. Brocklehurst. Uh, <laughs> it just... Well, I, when he you is say the it worst. Yeah. <laughs> that should be the name of more villains, just Brocklehurst. You can really spit that name out with some bile. Birdstone. <laughs> um, let's see. So at that school, Jane uh, befriends another student named Helen, and there's a kind teacher named Miss Temple. So it's not all bad, even though it's pretty rough. But then uh, in the first spring, when Jane is there, there's an epidemic of typhus that sweeps through the school. And Jane's friend, Helen, gets sick. But it's not typhus. She gets sick from consumption or tuberculosis. And Helen dies. And uh, due to the illnesses of, like, half of the students there and deaths <laughs> at the school, a committee is formed to improve the treatment of the girls. And life generally improves for Jane. And we kind of skip ahead pretty quickly. She graduates and spends two years teaching at the school before she goes and seeks out a position as a governess. And she's hired to go to a manor called Thornfield. At Thornfield, Jane meets a nice housekeeper named Mrs. Fairfax and finds out that she'll be tutoring an eight-year-old French girl named Adele. Jane hears eerie laughing and Mrs. Fairfax calls a woman named Grace Pulldown and uh, Jane didn't even know Grace Poole was there because she lives up on the third story of the house and uh, Mrs. Fairfax tells uh, Ms. Uh, Grace Poole to cut out the weird laughter. <laughs> <laughs> and then a few months later, Jane is out one night and she sees a ghostly spirit coming, but then she realizes it's just a man on a horse and the horse slips on some ice and the man hurts his ankle and Jane helps him up to the manor house. He's a stern man with uh, sort of unappealing features, is how Jane describes him. Later, Jane learns that this is, in fact, Mr. Rochester, the master of the house. And Jane finds out that Rochester has been the master of Thornfield for nine years since his older brother died. 
Rochester's cold and distant until one day he gets really chatty with Jane, kind of out of nowhere, and Rochester, Rochester asks Jane if she thinks he's handsome, and she says, no, I don't. <laughs> there's a lot of brutal honesty that flies back and forth between Jane and Rochester, and there's a lot of uh, kind of dwelling on looks uh, in this book. Like, Jane uh, knows she's playing. Rochester tells her that she's playing, uh, and she lets him know that he's not very attractive himself. Later on, Rochester tells Jane that he had set up uh, Adele's mother, a singer, as his mistress in Paris uh, years ago. But one day he caught her going out with another man, and so he cut her off from all of his money. And later the singer abandoned an infant daughter with Rochester. And even though Rochester is really confident that this baby is not his, <laughs> he takes takes her in and raises Adele. Uh, and one night, uh, a little later on, Jane hears the eerie laughing again. And she opens her door. Down the hall, she sees Rochester's door open, and his curtains are on fire. <laughs> so she runs in. He's still sleeping through this. So there's been laughter, and there's flames, and he's still asleep. And she runs in, and she throws water to put the fire out. And this wakes up Rochester because he's all splashed in water. And then he thanks Jane and blames the fire on that mysterious grace pool. And Jane is really weirded out by this grace pool person. Uh, later on, Rochester's having a big party at Thornfield. This is one of those multi-day or multi-week affairs that the upper class people seem to be having, uh, in the days when the story is set happens in all the Regency era novels. Yeah, it's definitely like a Jane Austen kind of thing. Yes. Uh, but Rochester insists that Jane, uh, sit in the parlor with his guests. He's kind of elevating her social standing and she is not (laughs) comfortable with this. She does not appreciate, appreciate this. Uh, and Rochester wants her there every single night. Well, but he also just ignores her. Like, he, he, he's totally messing with her. Yes. Yeah. He, he wants because he says, come, and I want you to be here every single night. And then she comes, and then he won't say a word to her for the whole time. And the other guests, like, talk bad about her being there, and he just listens. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of Rochester at this point in the novel. No. Uh, he's going to need a lot of rehabilitation. Yeah. <laughs> or someone who's worse to compare him to, I guess. Uh <laughs> Um, so one guest, Blanche Ingram is uh, like really hanging onto Rochester a lot. And, uh, the guests do a game of charades, but rather than watch the charades, Jane finds herself just watching Blanche flirt with Rochester. And she just thinks Blanche doesn't know how to flirt with him. He's, she's not doing it right. There's a good way to flirt with Rochester that he would approve of, but Blanche is doing it all wrong. And Jane knows, Jane knows the right way to flirt with him. I love their version of charades. <laughs> yes. It's very different from charades. Do you want to give a quick description of their version? It, it's this very elaborate. They all send their maids to go gather props and costumes. <laughs> and it's then very there's a, elaborate for the maids. <laughs> yeah. There's a statue. There's a, there's a, there's a stage and they like lift up the curtain and they're, they're doing, what is it that they call it in Frasier? Uh, when they do the, with the, when, when she needs the crossbow. Oh, the uh, Tableau Vivant? Yes, it's basically Tableau Vivant, right? Like, yeah. uh, they're, they're recreating famous scenes, and then the people have to guess what it is, but they have, they're like in full costume. It's very strange. And, yeah. and to see this Rochester guy who's very, I think often compared to Mr. Darcy in that he's very serious and stern. Well, we'll talk about, and, he's a Byronic hero, and we'll talk about what a Byronic yes. hero is when we get to our, our later discussion. But I have a note specifically and, about that. I think it's very surprising to see him uh, participating in this game of charades. Yes. I, it is for me. Absolutely. And I love in the scene where Jane is just watching the guy that she likes <laughs> and from across the room and like paying attention to all these details. And in her head, she has how the scene should be playing out if she was an actor in it. <laughs> but she's not. She's just watching. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's just really t- 
took me back to high school a lot. Let's <laughs> just say. Uh, and Jade even thinks uh, that Blanche, she just likes Rochester because of his wealth and not because of his unattractive looks and his off-putting behavior like she does. <laughs> and then uh, after this, Rochester, he leaves for a few days and a Mr. Mason arrives and he's kind of this mysterious guy. No one knows who he is, but he wants to see Rochester. But because Rochester's not there, Mason's just going to hang out for a little bit. And then one night while Rochester is still out, this gypsy woman comes and she insists that she needs to do a palm reading for all the single ladies. And yes, I just heard the Beyonce lyric in that. All the single ladies. <laughs> yeah. uh, didn't, didn't hear it when I wrote this, but there it is. Uh, Blanche goes first and she comes back looking pretty put out about whatever this uh, gypsy woman had told her. And then Jane goes in. And the lady is kind of vague and mysterious, but she hints that Jane is really close to happiness. And she also says that she told Blanche that Rochester's not as rich as he appears, and that's probably why Blanche is being all put out in the other room. And then Jane realizes that the gypsy woman is actually Rochester <laughs> in disguise. <laughs> um, Todd, in the uh, in the Michael Fassbender version of the film, did they do the scene? I cannot remember if they did or not. <laughs> I, I, I want to say that the scene is usually probably not put into film adaptations. I, I kind of want to say that they do do it, but I they may not. Okay. I have so many different versions of this now. I've, I've listened to two different audio versions. I've read it. And I've seen two different film versions, so there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, Jane Eyre floating around in my head. It's hard to keep. So, up so I had read this in ninth grade, and not again till now. And my only other like exposure to it was pop culture references to it. No one ever references uh, this scene, which seems like more people should be talking about Rochester cross-dressing as a gypsy to trick It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And I will say that in the audio version that I listened to on Audible, um, the voice that this voice actress does is – it's amazing because she has a very distinct Rochester, like a very gravelly Rochester voice. And when she does the old woman, it's Rochester being an old woman and – it's just like it's delightful the oh. way that the way that she disguises Rochester's voice. But you can you know if you didn't know if you were in Jane's situation, you would think that she's just making another voice. But because I knew that it was Rochester, I could tell from the beginning that it was Rochester doing a woman's voice, and it was awesome. Okay. All right. Well, Jane calls out Rochester on being Rochester and not a gypsy woman. <laughs> and uh, without ever really getting into why he's doing this absurd trade, <laughs> um, she, she no, says, he says that he wants to know what's going on I know, with, uh, with the company. Just, it's kind of an odd moment in the book, I think. Uh, but Well, Rochester's behavior through this whole, <laughs> this whole series of things with Blanche and the, the game of charades and now dressing up as a gypsy woman, this is all very strange. Yes. Um, but then when uh, Jane says, by the way, Rochester, Mr. Mason, uh, Mr. Mason came to see you. Like, Rochester, like, drops everything. It's, okay, I gotta go talk This to is him. a blow, Jane. This is a blow. <laughs> and then that night, Jane hears a cry for help. And she opens the door, but Rochester's out in the hall telling everyone, don't worry. Nothing to see here, folks. There's nothing going on. And so it's she a dream. The- Somebody had a bad dream. Yeah. And, th- and then Jane closes the door, and then he knocks on the door. He's like, uh, yeah, there's something to see here. Can you please come help me, Jane? Uh, I need you to help stop Mr. Mason from bleeding to death while I go get a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> but he forbids Mason and Jane to talk to each other while she is keeping his blood inside his body. (laughs) (laughs) And he's gone for like two hours and they don't have a conversation. They're like, okay. Yes. (laughs) Of course, Mr. Rochester. They could have, they could have done a thing like, I promise I won't tell him if you promise you won't tell him. Okay. (laughs) Okay, So what's going on here? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, so uh, Rochester comes back with a surgeon who mends up Mr. Mason, and but then r- almost right away, Jane is called back to go visit her aunt, the one who had sent her away to an orphanage, uh, because it turns out her uh, abusive cousin John, the one who is kind of the the Dudley <laughs> in her life, in her Harry Potter life, he has committed suicide, uh, and her aunt is now dying, uh, had a stroke, and is dying, and she wants to see Jane before she dies. Rochester does not want Jane to leave. Kind of a jerk move, Rochester. Uh, but she leaves anyway. And th- when she goes to see her aunt, uh, her aunt's still really rude to her. But at the end, uh, she reveals that Jane had an uncle, her father's brother, who came around looking for Jane after she'd been sent to the orphanage uh, because he wanted to adopt Jane and put her into his will. But Jane's aunt pretended that Jane had died <laughs> and didn't exist. Uh, there are a lot of jerky people in this uh, in this. Yeah, book. Uh, this is, uh, I mean. It's amazing. There are some really great people in this book, but there are some big jerks. It's pretty pretty amazing that Jane turns out as well as she does. Uh, So Jane returns to Thornfield, uh, and she's expecting that she's going to discover that Rochester has married Blanche. And she sees Rochester, but he's not married yet. And so she gets really excited to see him. And uh, she kind of lets slip out that wherever you are is my home, my only home. And that, of course, excites Rochester she to hear that. Sort of lets slip out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a subtle thing. I wonder if Rochester caught the subtext of that line. <laughs> and then uh, a few nights later, Rochester and Jane, get, they go out and they sit on a tree at night as the moon is rising for a good old DTR, uh, a determine the relationship chat. <laughs> and <laughs> they confess that they are, in fact, in love with one another. Uh, Isn't one this other. like the fourth time that they've actually confessed how they feel for each other? Ish. Though? Uh, yeah. Well, this is the most explicit, though. That they're, I mean, they're gets, pretty explicit. You say subtext. I would say text Oh, text. I was joking about the text. What? <laughs> yes, the subtext is calling him. But she doesn't stay to hear what he says to that. So she just blurts out, wherever you are is my home, my only home. And then she runs away because she's embarrassed she said this. Um, yeah, know, she said too much. So they didn't, that was not a DTR conversation. <laughs> I, it, again, if any listeners haven't heard the term DTR, I don't know how regional that was, but when we were in high school and you were starting to date someone, you would have the DTR. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so, uh, this DTR goes really well because they say that they're in love with each other and Rochester, in fact, asked Jane to marry him. <laughs> and she agrees. So about as, as positive an outcome to that kind of chat as you could hope for. Uh, but <laughs> then they go inside and lightning strikes the tree they were sitting on. Perhaps an ominous symbol. <laughs> um, quick note that's going to be important later. Jane writes a letter to her father's brother saying that even though we've never met, I'm still alive and I'm going to be getting married soon. So if we should meet sometime <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, at the wedding ceremony, jumping ahead a little bit, a stranger calls out at the, does anyone know any reason why these two shouldn't get married part of the ceremony? And he points out that, yeah, uh, Rochester's actually married <laughs> to Mr. Mason's uh... sister right now. And so what happened? Rochester doesn't even argue with this. He's just like, fine. Yes. I was about to commit bigamy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and he explains to Jane that uh, after the, the ceremony has been called off, as a young man, uh, I didn't have any promise of inheritance. My dad kind of wanted me to marry someone with some standing. I was in Jamaica. There was this family that had a good plantation thing going. Lots of people wanted me to marry the daughter of this family. Uh, so there's a lot of pressure for my family. I was probably drunk. And I married her <laughs> in Jamaica. <laughs> and uh, I pretty quickly I found out that she's dumb. And also she's mad as a hatter. <laughs> And so I was disappointed in my match and I took my wife, uh, or he takes the whole wedding party that's wants to, they take them back to Thornfield. They walk up to that third story where Grace Poole has supposedly been living and they find out that Grace Poole has been like the sole watcher over his wife 
Bertha? Is that the name? I yes. say it was Bertha. Yeah. Um, and she is, she, in Spanish, we would say she is as mad as a goat. That doesn't carry the same connotation in English as it must in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> she is bananas. Yeah, so like she just throws herself attacking uh, Rochester. And it, I think there's an interesting description in this attack. It says like Rochester could have just basically knocked her out unconscious, but he wrestles her away. Even though she's trying to do real physical yeah. harm to him, he does not do physical harm to her. He just controls her as much as he can. Then pretty soon thereafter, Jane runs away from Thornfield and eventually she's starving and freezing and out of money. She finds herself at the door of a house of a lovely family who take her in. There are two sisters, the adult sisters, Diana and Mary and uh, an adult brother whose name is, I, uh, when I was in junior high, I read it as St. John. And then I remember a class yes. discussion where they were saying Sinjin. I was like, who is the Sinjin? Sinjin <laughs> is the guy from Airwolf. <laughs> uh, but uh, apparently you just say St. John is Sinjin in some areas of the world. So, uh, they nurse her, uh, this family, they nurse Jane back to health, uh, but she says, my name is Jane Elliot, not heir. Uh, (laughs) and she only gives kind of a vague description of her life and how she ended up dying at their doorstep. And Jane, Diana, and Mary, they get along really well, as though they were a long-lost family. They, they just bond instantly. Uh, Sinjin is much more distant. He is a clergyman, and he's constantly traveling out to tend to the distant, poor, sick members of his church. Um, it, pretty early on in this like growing relationship between Jane Eyre and this family, they get a letter that kind of disappoints Diana and Mary. that says their uncle died. Uh, they'd never met him, but they were hoping to get some inheritance because their, their dad made some bad business <laughs> decisions and their family's kind of tight up for money. And Sinjin though, he arranges for Jane to go teach at a school for girls that he's starting up, uh, with, uh, kind of a wealthy person in the community is willing to help, uh, to pay for teacher. So now Jane Eyre is going to have a cottage to live at near the school and some income coming in as the school teacher. One snowy night, Sinjin shows up and he says he's, uh, there, there's someone looking for a Jane Eyre who needs to be found. And then he describes this Jane Eyre's life. And it is of course, Jane Elliot's life as we, the reader know. And Jane <laughs> admits, yeah, that's, that's me. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> and Sinjin says, well, your uncle died and left you 20,000 pounds. And then they have a very revelatory discussion. It seems that Jane, Sinjin, Diana, and Mary are all cousins. <laughs> it is amazing that she ended up a bit of a step. <laughs> it's 20,000 20, pounds is what the inheritance is? Yes. And she was getting from Rochester 30 pounds a year. year. Yes. And like, it's so uh, quite a sum of money. And like she says, like when she heard there's an inheritance, like a large sum that she imagined was 2000 pounds. <laughs> so this is 10 times what she thought was gonna be a huge inheritance. Um, and it turns out that the uncle who looked for Jane so that he could adopt her is also Sinjin's uncle. And, um, and they never knew these relations. And because she was calling herself Jane Elliot, no one had, had recognized this. Um, Sinjin had started to catch on to things though. Uh, but Jane immediately without even like even thinking about it, she says, well, of course you're each going to get 5,000 pounds. You're all my cousins. We're all family. This is split between all of us. Um, and she's more excited to have family than she is to have this inheritance coming in over the Christmas holidays. The cousins are all together. And, um, during this this kind of vacation time, Jane keeps helping Sinjin with his studies. He's trying to learn a new language, and he asked if she'd help, and she does. And um, she, he asked her to join him as a missionary to India, but as his wife. And she kind of says, mm, I'll go as a missionary. How's that? 
And he says, no, I cannot travel with a single woman when I am a single man and I'm a religious man. It must be as my wife. And she's like, what if you say I'm your sister? Cause I'm saying no to the marriage thing. Like she's really <laughs> adamant on the no. And he, in a moment that is like very manipulative, he says, mm, you know, you can only come as a missionary if you're my wife. And if you say no to marrying me and being a missionary, you're rejecting Christ. <laughs> um, he really doesn't seem to be like romantically in love with Jane Eyre at all. Uh, yeah, this is a quick summary no. of everything. There, he this isn't like he's manipulating her into a marriage because he, he, you know, he wants her physically or because he's just madly in love with her. He really just thinks she'd be a good missionary, but he can only have her travel with him as a wife. Is that <laughs> is that how you read that whole? Yes, thing? absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's uh he is one hundred percent committed to the mission. And he is not interested in her at all uh, romantically. And so she's like still saying no. And he gives her a deadline to think about it. And during this course of this <laughs> deadline passing one night, Sinjin is praying for Jane to like realize her calling in life. And she's taken to this kind of spiritual rapture and she hears Rochester calling for her. And Jane. <laughs> And, uh, Jane. so I guess an answer to the prayer, not the one Sinjin wanted her to get because <laughs> she runs off to Thornfield the very next day. She is gone. Uh, she wants to go find out why Rochester's calling for her and she finds Thornfield burned to the ground <laughs> and she goes to find out what happened. And she discovers that Rochester's mad wife set the house on fire again. And in an effort to save his servants and his wife, Rochester was crippled because he was running back in. He was making sure everyone's out. He was trying to get up to the, the roof where his wife was dancing madly. Uh, and he, the, some of the house collapsed on him. He lost his right hand. He went blind. Uh, the wife threw herself off of the roof and died. So he's now single. Might matter to Jane, who was not so into the bigamist side of Rochester but pretty much into everything else. And so Jane goes to find out where Rochester is convalescing. And she kind of does this like coy, I'm going to walk in on it. He's blind. He's not going to know it's me. I'm going to pretend I'm his usual servant, ringing him his, his dinner. Um, and Rochester is really getting a brood on this man can brood. He's, he's in the top tier of brooders in all of fiction, I would say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and she surprises him and like, they, they have this whole conversation about what's going on. And he's just like, Oh, you just came to tell me that you're getting married to Sinjin. Uh, <laughs> but she's like, no, I'm really, really here for you. Uh, and they get married pretty much immediately. Um, and in the last chapter of the book, Jane reveals that she has been married for 10 years of bliss and that Rochester's sight returned enough in one eye that he could see his son on the day that the baby was born. Aww. The end. Well done. Thank you. Good book. I trimmed out a lot. Uh, just know, listeners, if that sounded good at all, the book is better. <laughs> I am not yeah, and, uh, comparing myself I, to Bronte. You did, trim out, you did trim out quite a bit, but I think that it is a pretty straightforward story. And you hit all the all the right all the high points, so well done. Uh, just one thing I want to throw out before we move on. Listeners, we'll have in the show notes a link to a YouTube video about the Bronte-saurus. And you should Bronte-saurus. all watch it. You should all go watch that video. It is uh, just this wonderful little critique about uh, the culture of the Bronte sisters growing up. <laughs> All right. right. So what, uh, where do we go from here? Uh, well, we kind of already teased one thing. So should we talk about the Byronic hero real quick? Uh, yes, I, yes, I, I, I don't want this to end without you guessing who my favorite character in this novel is. Oh, oh, right now. Should I, should I stay my guess? Go ahead. All right. Based on what you know about me, it's going to be Mrs. Fairfax. Really? Yeah. That's what you think about me, huh? And that is what I think of you. Old matrons. 
<laughs> no, it's Helen Burns. What? Helen Burns is amazing. <laughs> and she dies young with all oh, of her well, all of, course. of her music okay. left yeah, to play. I should have all right. You, you know what? I should have said Helen Burns cuz <laughs> after the Mother's Day draft, we know that <laughs> you uh you go for the female characters that die and have a lot of promise before them. Oh, I love Helen Burns. She is amazing. All right. Uh, why? Let's talk about your Byronic hero. Okay. Or do you want to talk I, about I, Helen just, Burns? What do you love about Helen Burns real quick? Give us the why she's your favorite character. She's amazing because I'm a sucker for exactly what you said. Because <laughs> I'm a sucker for characters who die with, with you know, the music still left in them. And she's amazing. I think she she is a huge formative influence on Jane, uh, who is in this school, which is horrible. It's a horrible place. And Helen is, like, just too good for this world and is really trying to make the best of living in a in a really terrible situation and, and encourages Jane to try to do the same. And Jane does. And, you know, thankfully, after Helen dies, some people come in and realize what's going on in the school, and the school becomes a much better place, and Jane's able to stay there for a long time and and become, you know, a, 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 a good young woman. But man, when Jane gets to that school, she is really, really broken, and she has nobody. And Helen is, is Helen and Mrs. Temple, Miss yeah. Temple, they're both really great characters. I love them both, and the way that they uh, play an important role in helping Jane become the young woman that she becomes when she leaves. Yeah, I, I, several times in this podcast we've talked about uh, what we call the kind of the tangled phenomenon of these characters, uh, often women who are growing up in these horrible circumstances, but come out as amazing people. Um, <laughs> and this to me is not the same level as what we see in the Disney film tangled because of Miss Temple and Helen at the school that are there in her formative years that it's, it's not all bad, even though she, I would not wish her life on anyone <laughs> and what she experiences. The death scene, man, the, the death scene when, when, uh, when Helen dies, and Jane comes in to to see so, her and say goodbye to her. Yeah, Helen had My been really goodness. sick, and Jane wanted to see her to comfort her. And she goes in that night, and they, they talk, and Jane falls asleep talking to her, and she wakes up with Helen in her arms dead. Uh, it's <laughs> – I, I mean, I, I'm, like, walking to school listening to this story, and, and you know, like – brought a tear to my eye it was so it's so sweet and so tender the way that they the way that they talk to each other the way that helen is so convinced um of of god and the the contrast between brocklehurst and helen burns is amazing and i mean he in the name of god and and these girls learning how to become good young women he is a horrible person (laughs) Yes, and and a hypocrite, and there's it's nothing like, Christ-like in his behavior. Yeah, like no no kind of God that anybody would want to have anything to do with, and and then you see Helen in in her with her last dying breaths, uh, giving this, uh, I mean, a, a, expressing her her love for God to Jane, and it's it's sweet, and I don't know, I'm a, I'm a total sucker for this kind of stuff, and uh, it it gets me. And but, if man, you're a sucker Helen too, Burns, you should go amazing. listen to our Mother's Day podcast, episode number <laughs> 74, I believe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Byronic Hero, though. So uh, this is a, a trope in literature. It's named after Lord Byron. Um, but this is the male protagonist in a story who is kind of brooding and sullen and 
like rudely direct with everyone around them, but also has a heart of gold and you can reach them and form fantastic bonds with them. <laughs> uh, so I, I mean, we already compared Rochester and Darcy. Both of them fall under the kind of Byronic hero. Sure. Um, often found in romances and Gothic romances is where you see a lot of Byronic heroes mm-hmm. being, um, written as, again, as a, for a while, this was kind of the romantic lead in a lot of uh, novels that were being written in in uh, Europe, particularly. Why do you think it is that um, the 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 role of Rochester has become so iconic in film, and that we see it's it's like a, a Jane Eyre is almost I mean it's headlined by a man. Yeah, like the right? the promotion for it's a Jane Michael Eyre adaptation doing, or William Hurt. Right. Yeah, doing yeah. Rochester. It's not the, the Mia Alice in Wonderland girl Kowski. doing Jane Eyre. Kowska. It's a Mia yeah, Wazakowska. Uh, because she's I, such a great character. Yeah, because it's not that there's nothing there for Jane Eyre. And like the character evolves. The character mm-hmm. it has uh complexity to her. Um it, there's a lot of interesting moments where I, I, I guess I wonder if like for adapting it because we're told everything about Jane Eyre. Is it because there's still this unknown aspect of Rochester that there's this mystique about him that's not there for Jane Eyre? I mean, I would just say that in the in the film versions that I've seen of Jane Eyre, the she is well played. Like, I mean, they're well acted films mm-hmm. by these women, but I just don't think that they get. It's I mean, nobody remembers who the actress is that plays Jane Eyre, but everybody remembers that it's. You know these these big famous men. I, I, I imagine kind of part of this is just the general marketing and you know the patriarchal marketing sure. of of films. Like this is a complaint that's existed for decades at this point, yeah. and yeah. and we certainly haven't resolved it. Uh, so I, I think that's part of it. But also, uh, it's not just the, in marketing of films; it's also in the marketing of stars. Men are often given like better billing for complexity of their acting than women are. Uh, in, in the conversations that's, that go about it. Um, like you can, I, I, if we played a game of like rattle off actors who are famous for, uh, you know, for method acting or, you know, for disappearing into roles, we'd rattle off a dozen, <laughs> you know, without yeah. even trying. Uh, but if we did the same thing, um, for women, we, we could get a few, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it wouldn't be the same, same level. And it's not that there haven't been great female actors. It's that the, the marketing and the culture and the discussion around these is, geared around the male actors a lot. Yeah, I agree with that. Oh, I want to talk about uh, your Bi- this Byronic hero, Rochester. <laughs> I mean, I do want to talk about Jane Eyre, but while we're on the subject of Rochester, these scenes, of the charade scene and the, and the gypsy woman scene, it just doesn't seem to fit that character. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would agree with that. And I, like the, the gypsy scene, I did not remember that at all. And when it I happened, I was like, I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, what? It's so cool, <laughs> but it's so weird. And it seems so out of character for him. Yes. Uh, and so can we make it make sense? Does it, can, can you find a way to make it fit his character or do we just go along with it and say, it's kind of an odd moment, but it's kind of fun. Well, we do know that, we know some things about him. We know when he was in France that he was seemed to be kind of a much jollier fellow. He's a playboy kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, we know that he's an accomplished singer and was was taken enough by the arts and the opera that he was a part of that scene and you know, had this mistress. He also mistress. plays the piano, doesn't he? Uh, I can't remember. I think in the book uh, he when, plays the piano. When yeah. he sees Jane's artwork, 
it's obvious that he has an eye for art. So like his, he critiques it, but not okay. I mean, there, there are so few compliments that go back and forth between <laughs> Rochester and Jade in these early uh, interactions, where they're just kind of uh, you know, you don't look very nice, neither do you. Uh, and he sees her art, which most of the characters that have seen her art have been wowed by. He says, "This is good, but you don't have the training that you need to make it great." It, you know, is kind of his assessment. Uh, um, I think that I mean, I, I, he's he's impressed by it. He's impressed, but he also he does kind of call it like untrained. Essentially. Right, but what I'm saying is that he has an eye for art. Right, and that's what I'm saying is like he, everyone else is just blanketly praising this, right. and he says this is good, but it could be great if you had training. Yeah, so so the fact that he's that he's doing this thing that is artistic and theatrical, I don't think it it's completely outside of his uh, of his character in that. He is familiar with the theater and and the arts, but it just seems so strange for this guy who's so gruff and so serious to <laughs> dress up like a gypsy woman and trick everybody <laughs> in his thing. I mean, that seems so playful, and there doesn't seem to be much of play in in him. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, the gypsy woman thing, though, there is the element which this sets up why he doesn't marry Blanche is – it, he seems to have said something to her about, uh, oh, I see that you're in love with this man. He's not as wealthy as you think he is. Like, this is the start of the rumor that we know he'd be. Right. He, it seems like he does even more to, like, plant rumors that he's not as wealthy as he seems. And he's just testing her. Uh-huh. Um, which he has, uh, like, brooding and, and, you know, all these other things that he has. Part of it is this... Uh, lack of self-confidence that he has. Like, he he seems pretty sure that no one should find him as attractive as Blanche seems to be acting right. <laughs> that she does. Uh, and so he's he's just verifying this ulterior motive that he strongly suspects so that he'll call it off because he doesn't want to marry someone who's just marrying him for his money. So there yeah. is that element of, well, you know, why he does it? Okay, we see why. But, it like, the whole showiness of it does It's a very fall. playful and a kind of a trickster kind of thing, and he just doesn't come across as a trickster character. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. Um, while we're still on Byronic Heroes, and we've mentioned Darcy is another one, I just wanted, uh, which is the worst proposal? Or I guess maybe not worst, <laughs> but the worst of these two. Because <laughs> I'm sure there are probably worse proposals in literature somewhere out there. Uh, Darcy's proposal to Lizzie, the first one, or Sinjin's proposal to Jane Eyre, which is so bad. <laughs> they're both pretty bad. Uh, I, famously, Darcy's uh, begins uh, the line, in vain, I have struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be rep- repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. Like, I'm struggling to not love you, but it's, oh, I can't help myself. <laughs> Which, I, I guess... Against my better that, judgment or something like that. Yes, yeah. There's a hint of actual emotion there, but I'm going to read Sinjin's um, I think Sinjin's is worse. Oh, yeah. I, this is where I'm heading. But when I read it, I just couldn't help think of Darcy's. Yeah, against my better judgment. That's the line that is also really good in there. Uh, Come as my helpmeet and my fellow laborer. And she kind of, she's like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> and he says, God and nature intended you for a missionary's wife. It is not personal, but mental endowments they have given you. You are formed for labor, not for love. <laughs> A missionary's yes, wife. Yes, please, let me come to you. <laughs> well, there's more. A missionary's wife, you must be, shall be, you shall be mine. I claim you, not for my pleasure, but for my sovereign's service. <laughs> oh, Sinjin. 
Yeah. Um, it's like take notes on everything not to ever say <laughs> in, a, just, in a proposal. You are formed for labor, not for love. That's yeah. – that's, wow. But yeah, it's definitely Most worse rem- than Darcy. <laughs> oh, I, I, I was laughing out loud as I, re- as, as I heard uh, that proposal happening. And it's I, – I want to say like Sinjin is a really interesting character to me. I mean, we, we probably need to start, we've talked a lot about Rochester. We're going to talk about Sinjin. We need to circle back and talk about Jane. But um, there's a lot that's admirable about him, but there's also a lot that's like, tap the brakes, some son. Yes. <laughs> like, like uh, the Lord's services to help people, you know, individuals. And you're yes. just kind of not allowing any growth or, or anyone else to find anything other than your particular vision of what religion is and what, you know, God's uh, will is for his children would Everyone would be a missionary in Sinjin's mind, I think. Yes. Well, especially Jane. Yeah. <laughs> she was made for it, not for love. I, I am wondering in adaptations, do they sometimes I, – I would guess Sinjin is probably they, – they, they do more flexibility in how they portray Sinjin uh, than Rochester. He doesn't come Jane. across in the, in, the, in the most recent film version that I've seen. He doesn't come across as a total jerk. Which he's a jerk in this scene. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I could also see it being played as that he's romantically in love with her. Uh, you know, someone making that choice. Um, and he's manipulating her, uh, which makes him into uh, a much more nefarious character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember vaguely seeing at a conference uh, a paper about adaptations. And they were they talked some about Sinjin. And there was a version that they showed where he was a bit more buffoonish and a, a com- comedic character. Huh. Um All right. But let's, let's uh, spend some time talking uh, specifically about Jane. Uh, the the narrator of the story, the heroine of the story. What is it about Jane that makes you like? Now that we've both been engaged in this book more <laughs> than we did when we were, <laughs> you know, fifteen years old or whatever, uh, why do we like like Jane uh, in the story? I love the three different versions of her. There are the three kind of points in her life that we see in detail. So you see her when she's young, and she's really fiery um she she doesn't back down from you know what's going on when she when she tells mrs reed um which is her she's yes she's accused of being a liar and she says i am not a liar if i was a liar i wouldn't tell you what i'm about to tell you right now i hate you (laughs) i hate you i hate your kids and you've treated me like dirt and I detest everything about you. <laughs> like, there's just something. It's like, wow, Jane, that's that's kind <laughs> of intense. But she's an intense little girl. And when she gets to, uh, is it called Lowood? Uh, the, the the orphanage school. or the school? I, that sounds right. Where Brocklehurst sure. is in charge. Man, yeah. she is so. For all of that, like fire and and strength that we see at the very end when she leaves Mrs. Reed, she is really broken uh, when she gets there, and and the way that um, Helen and Miss Temple are able to help her to get through those those early days is is pretty remarkable, and we see change in her just over the course of of that period of her life. And then we get this, and then a bunch of years went by, and now we see her, and she's she's not a completely different person. She's just an evolved version of that younger girl, but she is quite different. And we see her and in her interactions with uh, Fairfax, and we see her interaction 
with uh, Rochester early on and with Adele. And then she goes away. And then we see this final version of her um, after she's had her own school and now she has money and she's – it's cool to see her evolution throughout that. It's one of the things that I most like about this novel. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say the same thing that um, the Jane that we have who's doing the – I mean who's writing the whole book but uh, we really meet in kind of the epilogue, the, the 10 years later and you know the final scenes with Rochester getting married and then the 10 years later where she reveals everything that's happened mm-hmm. is so different from the one at the beginning, but it feels earned all of those changes. Um, yeah, it's earned the in it. that brought those changes about. Yeah, absolutely. It feels it, it. Sometimes you see somebody make a radical change and you're like, wait, is that even the same person? Uh, and this, it, it never feels like she's made such a radical change that she's now no longer the same character, but it is, these are substantive, significant changes in her character that are, like you said, earned throughout. And even um, like her relationship with Rochester, uh, the, the early stages of it that we get when she's there, it feels a little um, like the immature love of like Romeo and Juliet. Yes. About. And Rochester says that to her. He's like, you're going to feel the passion. Like when he talks about his, his, uh, is it when he's talking about the mistress in, in France? Yeah. He says, um, you know, you wouldn't know anything about this because you've never felt love. And someday you will, but you haven't now. And then she has this love for him that at first is all in her head. <laughs> like it's um, her idea of Rochester. And, and they're, yes, they're having conversations. Well, but... so I would say sort of in her head, but she's also – I mean he is very forward in saying things to her at certain times. So when she saves him from burning in the fire and then again when that night – when uh, when Mason is there and he's stabbed uh, or attacked by by the by the wife, in both of those cases, Rochester says some very direct things to Jane that it, that it let us know that this is not all in her head. Like he is totally yeah. leading her on. But I mean, the way that the relationship is being played out, like there's when they're playing charades, there is such a long segment that is her thoughts about yes. Rochester and about what a relationship with him should be. And that she knows. <laughs> yeah, that, I love that, it when she's th- when she's thinking about how she would flirt with him, and she knows how to push his buttons in the right way. Yeah, and, and that to me is um, not the mature relationship we see at the end. You know that that's what I mean by like no, in the yeah, head. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. It's um, and it, it's I love Jane's. I love her character. The the fact that she remains calm. Uh, and goes in and and takes care of him when his bed's burning down, and she seems she, I don't know this is this strange balance between like scared puppy, but not not a weakling, you know. I mean, she's yeah. very submissive to him, and he says, "Go sit in that chair and take my robe and, and warm and yourself." Move. And, oh, move and don't move. I wish you move. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right, now move. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, she's very submissive to him, uh, but she's also. In a Louis L'Amour novel, they would say she's a woman you want to ride the river with. (laughs) She's the kind of woman that you want to have by your side and, you know, that anybody would want to have by their side. Right. When when Mason gets stabbed, uh, she hears all the rustling and she knows that something's gone on and she she now suspects that Rochester is going to come and get her and ask for her help. And so she dresses and she sits in the corner and she's like, 
okay, I'm ready. You know? And he says, are you afraid of blood? And she says, I don't really know. I've never seen it, but I think I'll probably be okay. And she is, I, I, I like the way that she handles herself through those, in those situations. And like I think really it's high. also a really important moment. Cause we, we've said like, she's pretty submissive to him and that can be the start of a very <laughs> bad relationship, which we see play out in a lot of stories yes. when he's doing, saying things like, all right, sit there. And she does and like, never move. Okay. Now move. And she does immediately. Cause he said it. Um, I think a really key moment and maybe an underrated moment for understanding Jane Eyre's character is when Mrs. Reed, her aunt calls her back home. And she goes to leave and Rochester says no. And she says, no, I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) Like he says no. And this is a case where she's like, no, this is more important than my feelings for you because this is actual family right now. And I don't know what my feelings are going to lead to. And we don't have a relationship yet. Uh, and this is more important than my employment here as the governess. Uh, you know, I'll, so this potential relationship that doesn't exist yet or my actual employment are less important than, uh, me seeing my aunt who I didn't like, but there's a family bond there. Like, yeah. like the, the family connection is more powerful. She does a similar thing. If I remember correctly, she does a similar thing when, when she finds out that Rochester is married and he says, we can still make this work. Yeah, and she says, right. uh, no, actually we're not going to make this work. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's made all the more, uh, potent that scene by the fact that we know how much she loves him and she really, truly adores him. <laughs> yeah. So he has this she whole is plan madly laid out. in love with him. Yeah. And his plan is that we're going to go somewhere where no one knows either of us. We will live as though we're married. No one will know but us that we're not married. And, and she says, great. forget about it. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, it's a similar relationship with Sinjin where, uh, she's pretty submissive to him where he asks a lot of things of her. Uh, and he's tested. We find out he's testing Like a lot of the men testing these women, <laughs> Rochester and Blanche <laughs> and Sinjin and Jane. Uh, he's testing Jane to see if she'd be a good missionary where he, he makes these kind of strong requests of her to go learn a language that she's never heard before. Right. Uh, and she, she says, fine, if this is going to help you to be a better missionary, I'll help you with that. Um, he's watching how she's a school teacher and he sees her dedication there. And, you know, she goes along with a lot of things that are asked of her. But then when he says, will you be my wife? She's like, nope, <laughs> but yeah. I will go be a missionary. So there's these points where some of these relationships could start to feel uh, manipulative or abusive, but she stops it wherever the line is that she's not willing to cross. Like she knows her limits and she's assertive when she needs to be assertive. And in these other instances, she's fine taking on the roles that are asked of her because she sees uh, often this, you know, the like helping Sinjin to learn this other language has a greater purpose. And so she's, she's fine going along with that. And we see her, we see her grow into becoming the woman that in the end, you know, the strong independent woman who is able to go and be with Rochester sort of as an equal. Uh, but even in her very earliest scenes with Rochester, when they're doing this banter back and forth, you know, sitting in front of the fire, she, she handles that so well. She is very smart and, and it almost feels like, I mean, it is banter and it, and it's playful, but it's also very, they're both calculating, kind of measuring each other, uh, mentally, and yeah, um, she handles that so well, and I, I wish I could you know, pull up the, you know, the specific things that that he brings up. But he'll say, you know, do you oppose of this? And she says yes. And he says, well, I suppose it's on these grounds. And she says, no, actually, it's on these other grounds. And he's like, oh, 
uh point granted <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like she's very she's really really smart and she handles those um those situations really well uh throughout and when she is submissive to him it's it's like submission on her own terms it's not because he's such a domineering character but because she she is willing to to grant him authority in certain in certain ways and not in other ways right um and even like i we mentioned it in the in the recap like when he says do you think i'm handsome if she was really being cowed and made submissive she'd right. say yeah of course you're my math like i you're my employer you are of a higher social class you are literally my boss of course right. i'm gonna say yes but she doesn't she's completely honest with him yeah so it's like it's submissive but it's it's submissive in the truest sense of the word in that she is voluntarily submitting to him, but only in certain contexts and in certain ways that she's comfortable with. And I, I think there's um, – she submits to the social norms uh, similarly. Like there are some social norms. Sure. Like some of the things she does would not be expected of a woman of her social status uh, or of a woman at all. <laughs> you know? Right. That, that, you know, the um, walking away from Thornfield with – you know, without a plan, but because she feels that's what she has to do, uh, walking away from, uh, Rochester when her family calls her like, but so, so she submits to social norms in some instances, but she also violates them in others. Yeah. She is her own woman and she lives life largely on her own terms. Another, another scene in this novel that I love is when she makes the decision to leave Lowood and it's this very like logical, okay, I know that I want to leave. How am I going to leave? I'm going to advertise. How am I going to do this? And she just walks herself through and it's very like bootstraps. Like I'm just going to, I'm going to take control of my life and I'm going to get myself out of here because I feel like there's more. And even though a woman probably wouldn't or couldn't or shouldn't be doing this, it's what I want. And so I'm going to make the kind of life that, that I want to live for myself. And, and Rochester asks her at one point, you know, what do you want for the future? And she says, I want a school and I want to be a teacher. And she gets that in the, in the end. She's, she has tons of agency and, and I love that about her. Uh, in our Chariots of Fire episode, uh, which you can go listen to one episode back in the feed uh we talked a little bit about british jingoism <laughs> did you enjoy like so uh, all of a sudden like there's a, just a really pro british comment in the in, in the novel <laughs> i didn't even notice it oh like um it, she talks about getting the french out of adele <laughs> with good british school oh yes <laughs> well adele kind of gets tossed under the bus a couple of times <laughs> Uh, so there's a little anti-French uh, sentiment, a little pro-British sentiment. And then she also, uh, when she's talking about being a school teacher, she talks about how good these British school children were. And then there's this comment of, I've traveled in Europe and I've seen how other children are. They are not as bright as these British children. <laughs> <laughs> well, they all speak with a British accent, so, so they must be smarter. Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I just enjoyed like spotting, like, oh, yes, little little country pride. <laughs> so oh, that's showing through. Yeah, it's like like we said in the in the uh, the chariots of fire episode. It's it's natural for people to have pride in their country. Yes. It's just sometimes the, how it gets performed uh, is interesting to see. <laughs> yes. Uh, do we have uh, more to say about Jane? Uh, no, I think uh, we're we're kind of nearing the end on time. I did want to say 
reading it again now, it reminded me of the Horatio Alger tale. Are you familiar with Horatio Alger tales in American lit at all? Um, not as well. So as Horatio I Alger is a writer who is often credited with, uh, kind of in the late 1800s, early 1900s, really codifying and cementing the rags to riches American tale where oh, if, right. you, if you work hard and you make moral choices, you'll be rewarded in the end. And a lot of times the reward in the end isn't like you've worked up to a certain salary. It's because you were a hard worker and you made good choices for moral reasons. Some serendipity falls upon you. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and that's where, you you know, you're, you're able to advance. And I was – this predates those Horatio Alger tales um, in, in publication. But it had a lot of the – she keeps making the right choices for the right reasons. Yes. Um, and she does get a reward in the end. And it's not just the romantic reward of being with Rochester. It's she's able to financially take care of herself. Like you said, she gets the school that she said she wanted. So she, and when she is, has left Thornfield and she's destitute, she doesn't have any money. She, she goes looking for work. <laughs> she doesn't yes. find it right away. Um, she eventually finds it, but she like, it's the first town she goes to. She's like, uh, what's the main economy here? Well, there's a needle making factory. Do, can women work there? No, no women are work there. Are there any seamstress positions? Like she has a <laughs> skill set and she's willing to do the hard work that's necessary. And the reward that she ends up getting, you know, between the dowry and things working out with Rochester is more than she hoped for, but she was doing the work for the right reasons. And she was making these moral choices of not, becoming Rochester's mistress of going to her aunt who she hated because that's what family does for family. Uh, and, and so I just saw it in that tradition as well. Or- this thought just occurred to me and I, the, there may be no connection here, but I'm thinking about our conversation about quiet, the quiet man and the fact. So John Wayne wants to marry Maureen O'Hara. Kate. And, Kate. And she is – she's really interested in this money, the dowry. And he's like, I don't care about the money. And she says, it matters to me. And is there something of that in Jane Eyre in, 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 in that her relationship with Rochester is going to be a better, healthier relationship if she goes into that having her own fortune? Does that make sense? Yeah. I think there is. She was – certainly aware of how it was going to be perceived. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, she, she does seem to, she did care uh, about how it was going to be like, like um, she specifically like the day after they get engaged, the first thing she says is you got to go tell Mrs. Fairfax. That the reason we were out so late last night talking is because we were talking about getting married. <laughs> like she was worried <laughs> about her reputation uh, right. in that. Uh, and not only is she going back to Rochester um, when he's not married anymore, but she's on equal or, or more equal financial footing. We don't sure. really know how rich he is. But also, like, with his current station, there's no doubt that she's going there out of love. <laughs> right. When he is a convalescing, um, you know, man who has been blinded and lost a hand uh, recently. Yeah. And, and then I have... I have one other one other question about this thing, and it um, I don't know when this thought like got seated in my mind, but it was something kind of on my mind as I was going through it most most recently. Um, I think you and I both have said that we like uh, Beauty and the Beast, the story. Yes, and and then we also know that there are a lot of people that don't like Beauty and the Beast because they say it's like a, a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing, and it's a uh, it's it's 
telling women in abusive relationships that that's fine, that you can change the, the, the bad man. Uh, what's the difference between that and this? Hmm. <laughs> because I, I, well, I mean, okay. I'm sure that there, we've I mean, mentioned... the fact that like, he's a, he's a, actually an animal. And... Well, okay. <laughs> yes. There are surface level differences there. Uh, but I mean, I think everything we've talked about Jane, we see more of that in Jane Eyre, the novel than we do in the beauty and the beast fairy tale or the Disney film where, uh, she walks away from it. Uh, well, I mean, she does go back to her father and, but, in that instance, Beast kind of allows it. And in this one, she goes against Rochester's request. Uh-huh. Um, she does attain more to become his social equal. So, that, I mean, there's there's class politics at play that are very different in this versus... I mean, it's, she's sure. uh, she's from a town and he's got a castle. So there is that. Hmm. I don't I mean, know. Is it, could we also, could, if if one were in a in in a critical mood, could one look at Jane Eyre and say it's the same thing? Like it's just this this good good girl who turns a bad man into a good man, and that's a crummy story. Yeah, I I think so. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't feel the same. So what is it? What is it that makes it feel different? Like even. As much as I like Beauty and the Beast, I completely see that complaint. And if it doesn't feel like it, that issue fits as naturally onto Jane Eyre as it does onto Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, with, with Beauty and the Beast, it's like a conscious decision. You, you see what, you see the argument that people are making and you go, yeah, I see that, but that's just not the way that I read this story. Uh huh. I mean, I, like, I choose not to see like that. Like this one, I kind of have to choose to see it. <laughs> uh huh. Instead of choose not to see it. And so is so maybe one question is is the difference in in the women or is the difference in the men or is the difference in both of them or is it the difference in the story or is it the difference in the way that the story like, is I, I think particularly in this one she leaves and she has other options but she still you know chooses to go back to that and, and like the the everything from her leaving Rochester on allows for a lot more evolution of Jane Eyre, whereas in Beauty and the Beast, it's you, you have about two minutes of screen time. <laughs> to yeah, wrap you it certainly up. don't get that final chapter that yeah. I think is really important between when she leaves him after she finds out that he's already married and when she goes back to him. I, I think that as far as as far as the story and like filmmaking and stuff is concerned, I think it's far. I think that the earlier stuff is maybe more interesting the you know the ghosts in the night and the the stabbing and the all of that is very dramatic in a way that i think that the other stuff maybe isn't i mean almost starving to death is pretty dramatic but <laughs> yeah but i think that that chapter in jane's life is really important in in making that final relationship work I agree and i think that. it's something that's lacking in beauty and the beast all uh, right and it makes a difference Final thought. Uh, I just want to say I love my final thought. I love the gothicness and the oh, it's fantastic all, all the talk of the fairies, the ghosts, uh, the specters, uh-huh. uh, the eerie laugh. Um, and I I can't remember because again it was so long ago when I first read it. Uh, like the reveal of his wife. Like how shocking is that the first time through? It's it's one of those. That's, at this point, I does it. You know, can anyone really? I, I assume as a ninth grader, I didn't know about it. But I knew about it going into this. Uh, so it wasn't like a shocking reveal and like all the eerie laugh. I knew what it was. But 
I, w- I wish I had that experience of reading this for the first time and not knowing all that and trying to figure out, puzzle out that mystery of what is this laugh that keeps, you know, what's going on with this fire? Like all of that. Yeah. Um, when <laughs> I, I loved when, when uh, Miss Fairfax is showing Jane around the house. Is it her or is, or is she talking to Rochester at some point? And Jane says, so are there any ghosts in this house? And and Fairfax is like, no, no, there's not really. And she's really, uh, and, and she says, no, I think all the Rochesters like they got they got all of their like b- bad living out when they were alive, and so now they're just resting in peace. And she's like, huh, okay, but she was to- she totally would have been uh, okay with the fact that if, if if Fairfax had said, yeah, well, you know, old Mrs. So and so, she's she always moves the plates around or something, <laughs> like. Yeah. You get the feeling that she would have she would have accepted that as a reality in this world, even though it's not it's not technically a ghost story. Um, there is there is that great romantic feel to it. I love it. Yeah, it, and it's it is really well done by Charlotte Bronte. <laughs> yes, and I think the well done in the in the films in the films that I've seen, it's it's well done also. Do you creepy, have any final creepy thoughts? laugh? The creepy laugh in the uh, audiobook is ooh, ooh. <laughs> uh it's a fantastic novel. I highly recommend it. Um and uh so I'm I'm glad we got to talk about it. That wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes and please leave us a review there. It helps uh, our listenership a lot and uh, we know that there are many of you listening to this that have not yet done that. So please go over to iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, links to things we've talked about in the episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all of our shows. And you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod. I'm at Todd K. Mack. Um, he is at Jay Dorowski and our producer, Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist. And we have lots of really great discussion going on there, uh, recently. If you would like the, if you like the show and would like to support us financially, there are a few ways you can do that. Uh, you could buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation for the show with a monetary donation by clicking on the support link on our homepage, or you can go to patreon.com slash protagonist. And uh, we would just remind you that all of our uh, patrons on Patreon have access to our quick casts, which are 15 to 35 minutes discussions about uh, recent films that have come out or uh, film trailers. And our most recent one is a discussion of uh, Captain American Civil War, Captain America Civil War. Finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of Audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. I was doing really well. (laughs) (laughs) Have we ever gotten through an outro? By going, <laughs> by going to Audible Trial, I, I cannot say that word. I keep wanting to say Audible Triable. <laughs> Is it twelve thirty? Oh, I'm so sorry, Andrew. <laughs> Just you're going to be editing this. You're not here, so you don't know this is coming. You're going to be editing this, and you're going to get to this moment, and I can just see you holding your head <laughs> and sighing. <laughs> 
just waiting for us to get back on track. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm going to get a running start at that word. <laughs>